You're listening to the City Lights Podcast, where we are equipping you to exalt Jesus and extend the kingdom of heaven right where you are. Thanks for joining us. I'm going to have you open up to Hebrews 11 while Timothy grabs this iPad, um, and we're going to be there just briefly before we go into a passage in Matthew, but I'm so excited to start a new series this morning with y'all called One Faith. Everybody say One Faith. That's like old school preacher. Turn to your neighbor and say One Faith. Um, I want to talk about faith this summer, all summer, June and July, maybe even into August, and I want to talk about faith in the context of Hebrews 11. Um, Faith is is a fearsome thing in the life of a human being to ask a person to trust you, let alone a God that you can't see to trust me, is a vulnerable place to be. You know, as human beings, as my friend Sam Hirschberg likes to say, as a humanoid, uh, there's so much that we don't know. And the older we get and the more experienced and knowledgeable we get, the more we find out what we don't know. And it's a terrifying thing to be in this world and not know, especially like when you have friends and family and you have children that you're sending off into this world that you don't have answers to. It can be a fearsome thing to be asked to have faith. And... And Hebrews talks about this. Hebrews talks about a kind of faith that isn't just fake it till you make it and, you know, kind of be like that duck that's calm on the top of the water but kick your feet as hard as you can underneath. No, there's like a confident faith that is invited to us in Hebrews 11, really all throughout the scriptures, that it says actually the wise can't get a hold of it. The children understand it better than wise people. It's this kind of faith that is extended through the Bible. And the secular world, the modern world, will tell you that it doesn't have faith. It's like that Napoleon Dynamite guy, you remember, when he's like, why have you not been baptized? Or not Napoleon, Nacho Libre. I got the wrong goofy 2004 movie. Nacho Libre, when Nacho says to his little wrestling buddy, why have you not been baptized? He says, because I believe in science, which is just preposterous because scientists have theories, have faith. You have to have faith. There's no, there's no exit pass. You don't get a, a, a do not, you know, get a free pass out of jail. You have to go through the passage of faith. You have to figure out what you believe and the space between what you know and what you don't know. You have to fill that up. Like, we're here on this day because we have faith in these architects that they built this building the way that the ceiling is not going to fall down. That's faith. When you, when you tuck your kids in at night and you decide what song you're going to sing, that comes from a value set of do you value strength or calmness or humility or passion? Like, what do you value? And that value comes from a deeper truth, which comes from a deeper wisdom, which is where your faith is rooted. So if you have faith, if you don't think that you have faith, you do have faith. But Hebrews and and, and Ephesians tells us there's only one kind of true faith, though. There's all sorts of ways you could fill in. Anybody anybody can come up with an idea, you know, just just ask somebody that talks well, that's eloquent, that's smooth talking, and they can convince you of an idea the way they fill up their gap of unknowns. But at the end of the day, the Bible says, no matter what they propose to know, there's only one true faith. There's only one faith is what Ephesians 4 says. One baptism, one church, one spirit, one, one God, and only one faith that leads to peace with God, that leads to a righteousness, that leads to a, uh, I am who I was supposed to be. That's the faith that, that brings us home. And that's what we want to look at is, is stories and testimonies of faith all throughout Hebrews 11. We're going to have, I'm so glad Timothy was doing announcements this morning. Timothy's going to preach in a few weeks, and Stephen Lewis, one of the elders here, is going to preach, and we're going to talk about all the stories. And I love that we're telling stories about faith, because here's the interesting thing. If you wanted to ask me, 
What's your definition of love? I would send you to a place called 1 Corinthians 13, which you don't need to turn to today, but 1 Corinthians 13 is a list of superlatives. And so it's saying that if, if you wanted to ask the Bible what love is, it would give you a list of, of synonyms for what love is, patient and kind. But when you ask the Bible to talk about faith, it doesn't give you synonyms, it gives you stories. It gives you testimonies. It gives you a, we were slaves running from an army of oppressors and we got to the beach and God split the sea. That's how faith is transmitted. It's not just a dictionary word. It's not just a synonym. It's not a syntax. It's not just something that I can tell you. It's I have to show you. I have to talk about it. I have to share my faith with you. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this summer. Each day, each Sunday, I want to, it's, it's been my prayer. I don't know why I've just had this thing on me that we would, be a church, and we would pray this way that our Bibles would get marked up in highlighters. And not to say that that makes you great or that makes you more biblically, you know, knowledgeable, but I just, that our Bibles, that's what I've been praying for, that our Bibles would get used. And we wouldn't just do the Instagram faith where we go through and read the pithy comment from Christian Soup of the Day, but like really want to know our God. Just like really just say, I want you to show me who you are. I'm not going to put you in a box, and I'm not going to allow four layers of interpretation to happen before it gets to me. I just want to know who you are and who you say that you are. And that's really my heart. I really think that there is an invitation to anybody that's hungry that wants to see and see can come and see all that he has done. In Hebrews 11, it's just chalk-filled with testimonies. That's what I love about it, just chalk-filled with stories. And so for the next couple of weeks, June and July, we're just going to tell stories. And Noah, talk about Abraham, and talk about Isaac, and talk about Joseph. Because, because here's the thing is that the stories are different, and they have different contexts and different conclusions, but they have a single thing. There's only one faith. And here's the great thing about God and about faith is that God is not like the office. He doesn't do reruns. And he is always telling new stories. And we don't need another Red Sea split. And we don't need another, you know, Daniel in the lion's den. We don't need another repeat. We need their faith in our hands that we would walk out our story today, men and women of God, that would say yes to the faith that we share. There's not two faiths. There is not, two, there is not a faith that, that the Old Testament people had. They had the beard kit and the staff, and they, were, they talked with a deep Charlton Heston voice, and that's why they had... No, there's not two faiths. There's only one faith. There's not a faith that you just came just as I am down to the altar in 2003 and accepted Jesus into your heart and accepted him as your personal Lord and Savior. There's a, like some type of a saving, superstitious faith that just saves you because you did one thing. No, 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 there's only one faith. There's a, there's a faith that raised Lazarus from the death. There's a faith that, faith that split the Red Sea. There's a faith that, that caused Abraham to sacrifice his only son. There's a faith that caused the Israelites to be saved because there's blood above their doorpost. There's, there's faith when Elijah called fire down from heaven. There's faith when Jesus allowed Peter to walk on the water. There was only one faith, and so there's not a saving faith and a living faith and a sanctifying faith and a surrendering faith. There's only one faith, which is a simple trust in God's word. It's a, it's a harrowing and fearsome thing to trust God at his word. But that is, our, that is, that is the request. That is what, what, what the great cloud of witnesses and the heritage that has gone before us, you know, their lives proved to show. For the rest of the summer, we're going to look at Old Testament characters, people that waited on God, looked forward to meeting Jesus, but never met him before. Today, as we start this series, I want to just take one Start from the source, Jesus, somebody that met Jesus, knew Jesus, walked with Jesus, wasn't waiting on him to show up, like did life with him in Peter. And I want to use this story as, as a filter, really, and a reference point to go back to as we continue on in this study. But that's found 
in Matthew chapter 14. So we'll read Hebrews 11 in a moment, but we'll start with Hebrews 14 this time. Or excuse me, Matthew 14. Immediately, the disciples were invited to get into the boat. Actually, I read it wrong. It's that Jesus made them get into the boat. The disciples had just finished this incredible time uh, on the mountainside where Jesus multiplied all this bread and fish for this really large audience. I'm sure the disciples were tired. I'm sure it was, night, it was nighttime. I'm sure they were ready for a vacation for a rest. But instead of getting a vacation, it says Jesus made them get into the boat. So these disciples, the 12 that were closest to him, they go off into this boat and it says that Jesus didn't stay in the boat with them, but rather he went up to another place. He dismisses the crowds in verse 23, and after he dismissed the crowds, he went up to the mountain to pray. How many of you guys had a parent that was like tough as nails to you, but super nice to your friends? Like Asian dads are really great at this. They're really great at this. Like Timmy gets a B and they'll be like, oh, Timmy, you're just, you did a great job, my friend. Good job, Timmy. As soon as he leaves, he'll be like, he'll be like what'd you get? And I'll be like, I got an A minus. He'll be like, why do you not work harder? <laughs> Facebook, why didn't I Facebook and study? Uh, they're they're full, of, full of those types of jokes. But you know, like the, the parent that like, I used to have a kid named Matt Tanzi and he was just a savage. He would just come into your room and like, he enjoyed my company, I think, but just loved the toys that he didn't have that I had. And so he doesn't just pick one toy out of the pile and like find the one he wants to play with, like, you know, diligently and selectively. You know, this kid, Matt, you know a Matt, Matt Tanzi, not this Matt, but Matt, he'll just take your toys, just just mess up your whole house. You know what I mean? He doesn't put up the seat when he goes to the bathroom. He leaves the fridge open. He's just a savage. He just has no sense of manners and, and politeness. He's just doing crazy stuff. And, and you know, mom's like, oh, Matt, do you have everything you need? Yes, Mrs. Wong. I'm having a lovely time. Thank you. Matt, do you need any extra pillows or blankets? Oh, thank you, Mrs. Wong. You're so sweet. You're the only one that makes eggs the way that I like them. Thank you, Mrs. Wong. And, and, and she's just all nice to him. You ever have a parent that's just super nice, and then as soon as they leave, they're like, Oliver, Wong, Oliver Leon Wong, if you don't get upstairs and clean your room right now and put these toys back, you're going to hear it from me. And I'm like, why didn't you say that when Matt was here? He's a Tasmanian devil. You got to pull him in. Jesus had some of his toughest, toughest sermons for his, for his closest friends. You ever notice this? Like the crowds got the nice side of Jesus. They got the let's have food multiplied and we're hungry and now we're going to leave side of Jesus, not let's get in the Titanic boat and go, go across the ocean type of Jesus. He saved his hardest, you ever notice this? He saved his hardest lessons for the ones that were, that were closest to him. There's a book called Chicken Noodle Soup for the Christian Soul. Jesus did not read it for his disciples. He says some hard things to disciples. And this is what we got to recognize here. Like being close to Jesus has a lot of comfort to it. It also has a lot of challenge. And in a culture of Christianity where there is a lot of mention of verses like, come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. There isn't as much credence paid to verses like, pick up your cross daily and die to yourself. If you looked at the number of volume of sermons preached this way. Like, he's the God, he's the Jesus that says to Peter, I know you think you're a fisherman. I see you as bigger than that. You are, you are Petros. You are Peter who, on which I'm going to build my church. You're the rock. Oh, and by the way, you also remind me of Satan. And the things you're thinking about are not the things of God, and so you need to get behind me until you're ready to follow the things of faith. Imagine you say that to your youth group, right? The drummer's like getting arrogant and drumming too hard, and you say, hey, Satan, tone it down. Like, that's not the sermon that you hear, right? 
Jesus is not afraid of his disciples' feelings. James would maybe give us a little insight. He disciplines those that he loves. Disciple sounds a lot because it means a lot, like discipline, like some of the hard words, the challenging things that Jesus says. Get in the boat. <laughs> it's not, hey, I'm going to invite you to come into my Get in the boat. Like we need to reckon, we all know where this story's headed and we need to understand the invitation. It wasn't like an option that Peter erroneously chose. He followed Jesus into the boat. Get in the boat. It's time to get in the boat. He goes off and goes and prays. Story continues. When evening came, uh, he was there alone, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them, and it was the fourth watch of the night. The Roman military. Uh, culture at this time would have seen that as late into the night. The fourth watch would have any, been anywhere from three to six in the morning. It came to them walking on the sea, but when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, it's a ghost. And they cried out in fear. Three in the morning, it's a lot like last week. If you were here, we talked about the average random times of day that God decides to do things in people's lives in the Bible. Three in the afternoon just makes me want to take a nap. Three in the morning, I'm usually deep in sleep. God is not a respecter of timetables, it seems, from these types of passages, you know? Like he wrestles with Jacob all throughout the night. You ever read that in the Bible? God, a man named Jacob in the Old Testament wrestles with God. God, give me some sleep, man. <laughs> I'm trying to sleep. He calls to Samuel at three in the morning, in the middle of the night. He wakens Peter. He could have he set Peter free at 10 o'clock when... We're wide awake and we're ready to do things, but he sets them free at three in the morning. And scientists say that three in the morning is a very specific time for your sleep patterns, for your, your health, the way that your body and metabolism is functioning, your mental capacity at three in the morning is very different from any other time. It's a very lonely and vulnerable time. It's a, it's a time when your guard is down and you're not thinking clearly and maybe sometimes even thinking in that way, in a supernatural way, sometimes even more clearly than you usually do at three in the morning. And, 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 and authors know this because in F. Scott Fitzgerald's, you know, Great Gatsby, he like writes about three in the morning because he knows when you say three in the morning, like that brings out a certain emotion in you. Three in the morning is, is, a, is a season of life, I would argue. And just to take a step away from, from this passage in this context, I bet we've all took time to, to share the mic this morning. We'd all have, kind of have three in the morning stories. And, and I think it's important not to overemphasize, but also not to de-emphasize the significance of what God will do in your sleep and what he'll do when he wakes you up in the middle of the night and what you're supposed to be doing when you have a nightmare at three in the morning and what happens when your kids wake you up at three in the morning. There's something significant that God does in that window of time. I'm not here to make numbers out of things and God's gonna break in at any time. But all I'm saying is that don't rule out the very real possibility that if you wake up at three o'clock in the morning tomorrow, it's probably, or it might not be, on accident. God speaks to you on his own agenda. And so when we have a small picture of Jesus that only invites us to have the easy yoke and the comfort and the nice chicken noodle soup of the Instagram soul Jesus, and Jesus only speaks when I have my Bible open at the sunset with my coffee and my cappuccino, don't forget that God spoke to the disciples and many of the people of our heritage at times when they were not paying attention and at times of great inconvenience like three in the morning and three in the afternoon. His discipleship is challenging. Verse 27, but immediately Jesus spoke to them, take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come on the water. He said, come. 
So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. There's something about the ocean that is both equally beautiful and equally terrifying all at the same time. There's something very different about the ocean at 3 o'clock in the afternoon and 3 o'clock in the morning. The ocean at 3 o'clock in the afternoon is the place I would drive four hours to go on vacation to. The, the ocean at 3 o'clock in the morning, especially you're out in a boat, especially if you're in a storm, is the stuff of nightmares. The ocean is a terrifying thing. There's something about the ocean that just preaches at you without words, I am bigger than you. And I will be here when you're not here. And I was here when you were not here. And there is depths to me that you will not know. Much of, much of creation, man has kind of had dominion over and controlled and created governments and architecture and buildings and structures and ruled over the beasts of the animals. But there's something untouched and untapped in that department when it comes to the depths of the ocean. Every man's equalized in the ocean. No one's a superhero in the ocean. That's the thing about, about the ocean. I learned this lesson the hard way in 2004 when I was at a summer project for Campus Crusade for Christ. It was a great summer for me of my own personal faith when I was starting to see God as bigger than the church. And I had participated in all what all the guys did. There's about 150 of us. We did this thing like John Eldridge's Wild at Heart. It was this book that everybody used to read uh, back in the late 90s. And it was all about biblical manhood and, and being a man and being brave and being courageous. And so we had gone through this whole, you know, ceremonial thing where we painted our faces blue like William Wallace, the movie of the day. And we were like chanting war chants down in the basement, just getting stupider and stupider and stupider every moment. The time went on. I've said it before in sermons like women, when they get together, their aggregate intelligence increases. They're greater than the sum of their parts. It's amazing. They compromise and they use communication and they create, you know, deals together and they brainstorm and men just get dumber. And so the end of this evening leads to let's go down to the beach and get baseball bats and hit potatoes into the ocean, which I couldn't explain to you how we got there, but somehow John Eldridge led the potatoes into the ocean. So we're on the beach, and we're hitting potato after potato in the ocean, and after a while, the potatoes run out, so we need something dumber to do. So somebody says, let's go swim in the ocean at 12 o'clock at night when you can't see anything. And, and it's the arrogance or ego or whatever it is of man that when, when you see a, a black wave that just moves into the moonlight and sweeps up onto the shore, you're like, I'm going to go swim in that. And so I go out there. <laughs> And I'm just the king of the sea. Like, I, I, you're invincible at 20. You think that you, you can do anything. And somebody should have taught me about riptides and what to do in them and what not to do in them. A riptide is a tide that instead of pushing you back towards the shore, as much as you would swim against the current, it pulls you back into the ocean. And so worry led to stress and stress led to fear when I started to realize not only might I not get back to the ocean, it's probable that I won't make it back to shore. And just a little brief lifeguarding moment, if you ever do get caught in a riptide, swim sideways, not backwards, because that's what happened to me. Yeah, Kim's doing the motion. She already knows, because she's a woman. They probably talked about it at Bible study. So I'm swimming back towards the shore, and every stroke is pushing me back out towards the depths of the abyss of nothingness. And by the grace of God, I, I swept into the final pier of this thing that 
you know, like at the, every mile marker, there's this pier, and you can hold, I held on to the staff that came out of the depths of the beach, and, the, and my friend John, like, came through to come and save me, and the, the waves were mighty that day. No, the waves were so bad, he, like, spun around and hit his head. I mean, it was a scene. It was really bad, and I, and I learned to respect the ocean that summer. It was an important, good fear, a good, a, a healthy fear of the ocean, but, but the ocean is a fearsome and beautiful place, and so is life. Life, when you're six, is a small world, and people that are older than you have all the answers. And you're only worried about how does Santa Claus go around to every house on the block at the same time, and how can I not eat vegetables and eat more cookies, and why in the first place do all things that taste good, are they bad for you? These are the types of questions. And life pulls you a little deeper in and you turn 16 and you start asking real questions like, do I matter and who am I and can I trust my parents and will she like me and do I have a purpose and can I trust anyone? These are the questions that you ask and you still look to your elders, you know, your, your uncles and aunts and pastors and you think, well, I don't know the answer, but the good thing is when I get as old as them, I will know the answer. And then you get as old as them and you realize you don't have any of the answers. And in fact, you not only have doubts, significant doubts, but now those doubts are not only filled with, with fear, they're filled in some ways with certainty at the depths of our heart. If God is real, he must be fickle. The waves of, of death crash on you, of regret the waves of, of disillusionment, of dreams deferred year after year, trauma, crisis. These adult waves begin to hit you, and there's nobody that has the answers for you anymore. And even your spouse can't go with you to the depths of those places. And you realize your adults that you thought knew the answers don't know the answers, and you don't have the answers either. And maybe it's the rich that are the only ones that ever make it. And the only thing you ever have is what you fight for. And maybe you can't really trust anybody. And maybe marriage is a farce. And maybe, maybe anyone that you give your heart to is going to break it. Maybe that's real. That could be real. Do you know that? If you don't have faith, that could be real. And at the bottom of that ocean is the biggest lie, that God's not real. And he doesn't exist. And life is cruel. And death is cruel. And it'll take you in a second. And it won't give you a famous ending scene. And your life won't amount to anything. This is what we think about. This is what keeps us up at 3 in the morning. This is what the waves of life do to us in 30 and 40 and 50 years. And Jesus sent these guys. He put them in the boat. And he sent them out into the depths of that. He gave them no life jacket. He gave them no plan. As if to say there's certain parts of faith that need to get taught on storms and not on the shore. And there's 12 guys in that boat. And we see what happens. It's not a great amount of faith. It's a mustard seed of faith. Peter says to him, help. He says, Lord, is it you? He doesn't even know if it's him. It's a silhouette. The disciples thought he was a ghost. He has a mustard seed of faith on this thing. He's not waiting for a certainty before he says yes to the faith that he has. He, he looks out. He says, Lord, is it you? And this is the response that he gets from Jesus. It's the it's the only response, it's the most significant response that we receive in an hour of need that a human being could ask for from, from a moment like that. He hears from his maker, his, his Messiah, his, 
his great, his hero, his, his, his leader, his teacher, he hears this from his friend that just says to him, come, come to me. This man who's not only just like, approaching him doing the doggy paddle, trying to swim up to him as another man. No, it's a man that's standing on the doubts of his life and saying, I know who you are and I know what you're thinking. I know the doubts that you have. I know them better than you. I know the depths of the sea better than you and I can't explain it to you all. But what I do have have to you, I offer you today. I just say, come to me. Come to me and know me. Come to me, hear my voice and come towards me. I know that you don't want to. I know that it's hard, but I want you to come out to me because your answer isn't in the solution. It's not in the fact. It's not in the explanation. It's in me. And so I want you to come to me if you hear my voice. Hebrews says it this way. If you hear his voice, do not harden your heart, but turn to him if you hear his voice. Come to him. If you have a little bit of faith, come to him. If you have a mustard seed of faith, come to him. If you hear or see his silhouette, you might not even be sure that it is, but it's better to have an ounce of, an ounce of faith in an ocean of doubt to walk towards somebody that's towards the Messiah that's calling you. If you can hear him, don't take that for granted. That's his mercy today. Come to him if you hear his voice. And this is what is offered. This is what is offered from, from Genesis to Revelation. It's not solutions and it's not facts and it's not arguable points. It's a voice that's called out. Hebrews 11, we'll get to it now. Hebrews 11, one through three, says it this way. I'll have to look up on the screen because now it's all the way up at the top. Faith is the assurance. Can we get that? Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Next slide. For by it, the people of old received their commendation By faith, we understand that the universe was created. This is it. By faith, we understand that the universe, the seas, the doubts, what we know, the shadows, the sunlight, the things that we have in our hand, the things that we don't, the future and the past was created by the logos and rhema, the voice, the precious breath of God created and spun the universe and made you and I and made the moments that we walk in. He and his voice is the common narrative of faith throughout the scriptures. There is faith that leads people to great victory. And as it says in the end of Hebrews 11, there's people that are sawed in two, die from famine, of no repute, of no reputation, see nothing for their faith on this side of earth. Faith will, will, will looks all different colors and shapes and sizes in all different times. But there's one thing that is common between Abraham and Moses and Jacob and Isaac and Jesus and Peter and Paul and you and I. You know what it is? It's the precious voice of God that invites us to come in every moment. The seed of all faith is the word of God. It's the Bible. It's the things that God has said that people take at face value and simply respond as a child and just say yes. It was the, it was the voice that called out to Abraham and said, I know you're 70 and I know you can't have any kids, but I want you to leave the place that you're going to go to go to a place I'm not yet going to tell you about. It's the voice that that called Abraham to, to sacrifice his son. It's the voice that called Noah to build a boat when no one ever seen ocean before, rain before, or, or flood before. This is, this, is, this is the voice that is common to all people of faith, and this is what I feel like the great cloud of witnesses and the ancients confess to us backwards. They say, it doesn't take great faith. It just takes you to see great faithfulness in him. It's not a blind faith. It's not, it's not a lottery ticket or putting your money on red. It's knowing that the voice that got you here is the voice that's going to get you there. 
and trusting in the voice that you've heard. If he's been faithful today, then he'll be faithful tomorrow. This is the source of faith. It's not great people with great eloquence and great... They're all followed. They, I think the scriptures is clear to make sure that you know that Noah gets drunk and you know that Moses killed a person. And you know I've seen pastors go to prisons before and say, I'm going to rip out all the pages of the Bible heroes that, uh, that sinned or committed murder or adultery. And he ripped the whole book out because none of them are great people. They're not superheroes. They're just people that knew how to say yes to his voice, knew how to do the simple things of responding in obedience to his voice. If you guys have been in youth group anywhere from 1989 to 2001, I want to issue an apology to you for all youth pastors that have preached to you out of Indiana Jones 316. It's a great analogy, but I want to poke at it today. There's a, there's a moment in Indiana Jones. It's not the Temple of Doom. It's the last crusade when his dad, Sean Connery, is on his deathbed, and he has to go across a chasm, maybe to that soundboard over there, to go and get the antidote to heal his dad. And he's got a journal that tells him that when he sees the mouth of the lion, he should leap of faith out of the mouth of the lion towards the other side of the, of the chasm. Spielberg has got the camera. It just looks down, and it's just black, just great 80s cinematography. Harrison Ford, he's got that chest here, takes that foot, and that, and that docker shoe, let me not fall off, he steps onto it, and it's an invisible path. And he walks all the way across, and the preacher says, Brother, you got to trust in faith, not by sight. And it's a great, it's a great picture. I mean, if, it's, if I got sixth graders in front of me, that's exactly what I would say today. <laughs> but there is a critical difference between Indiana Jones and Peter, and that is that Indiana Jones walks on an invisible path, and, Jesus, and Peter walks on a wave, but Jesus is standing on his wave, and, and Indiana Jones has got nobody on the other side. He can only trust in the superstitious, matrix of mystery. If I do my thing right, if I play my cards right, if I pray seven times this way, if I have my lucky rabbit's foot, if I see a deer at four o'clock in the morning, if I set my fleece out and it's wet, if, if it's working, then it's God. That's the only thing that they have is a transactional faith. But we see on this ocean, and we will see all across this series, that God is not doing a risk type of faith or a transactional faith. He's doing a relational faith. Come to my voice. I'm not asking you to, to do the right things and take the right steps and then you'll know because it'll work. No, no, no. He's only asking you to do the step of relationship. I'm not asking you to go across the bridge by yourself. I'm asking you to go with me. I'm not asking you to go anywhere I haven't already gone and I'm going with you. I'm with you in the Red Sea. I'm with you in the dungeon, Joseph. I'm with you in the lion's den. I'm with you in the furnace, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. I'm with you, the spies. I'm with you, Peter on the water. I am with you. And that's the great promise. The only promise that we need is come to me. So my simple question is this. Is your faith transactional or is it relational? The critical question I think Peter asks that, that shows us and proves to us the relationship in him to go out towards Peter on, or towards Jesus on that water is the question, Lord, is it you? Because there's a dashing young man that's going to ask him to ask you to marry him one day if you're a young single lady. And he's going to smell great and be funny. And it feels great to be married. And all your friends are married and you want to be married. And the temptation is to go out and say, yes, but not ever ask the question, is it you, Lord? 
is this you? The promotion always sounds like him, right? Abundance, if it's a transactional thing. If it's just, I'm going to figure out how to get my thing that I need, and so I'll do the right steps and step on the right path, and then I'll get there. The transactional thing will say, well, if it's an open door, then walk through it. But very few of us, by faith, will ask the question, is it you? Because success and blessing is not the litmus test for faith. Relationship is. Proximity is. Presence is. Joy is. That's the question. Maybe you're not listening to the voice enough to know what it is. John 10 tells us that we are pre-wired and predestined to hear his voice more clearly than ever, but we have all sorts of ways to distort it when we're in the context of fear. We're in the middle of that ocean of doubt. But he says, if you're listening, I'm speaking. And that's the good news for you is that God is speaking to you through his scripture and through his Holy Spirit right now more than you want to listen. The question is, are you listening? The disciples thought that the voice that was speaking to him was a ghost. Sometimes the things that God is speaking to you seem foreign to you and you wouldn't recognize them as him because they're too uncomfortable. And if we have no grid and no idea of God challenging us, we only have God comforts us, but we don't have God challenges us, we're not prepared to hear the challenge word. And he will tell you things. Now, don't get me wrong, I'm not gonna go off the other side of the gutter and say, well, he's a masochist, he's gonna pull you into. His, his promise and his challenge is comforting. You will know it by the peace that you hear in your heart. But make no mistake, sometimes it will feel scary to you the things he's asking you to do. But he's calling you closer to him. Draw near to me is what Hebrews 11 would say. This is what, this is, can we get that verse on the board? I think it's all muddled in my notes now. Hebrews 11, I think it's verse 6. Can we get that up here? But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed, this is clearly not the right verse, to be called their God, for he has prepared them um, for, for a city. The calling of destination and, and all the things that come before in that verse go down into another verse, which I'm sorry that I don't have the reference for, but it talks about a drawing near. Hannah, if you could find that one, possibly. But this promise to draw near to me, to know me, to be close to me, to be intimacy. Faith is relational when it comes to Jesus. Maybe the person, did you know that when Mary... And Martha went to go find Jesus, and he was not in the tomb, that they didn't understand that he was actually standing right next to them because they thought that he was a gardener. There were people that walked next to Jesus on the road to Aramaeus, didn't even know who he was until they noticed that their hearts were burning within them. Sometimes God is speaking to you through such familiarity. Your mom, believe it or not, might be able to offer you the wisdom of God at some times. And because she's your mom and she's not Judah Smith, you're not listening to her. But God speaks through fearsome things and he also speaks through familiar things. And it's the ones that are hungry to hear his voice that get to activate in fear. This summer, I'm so excited about getting into the stories of God and the testimonies of God because God never does repeats in the same faith. There is only one faith, which means that all the things that, that people have done in, in the pages and annals of history in the Bible from from, from splitting oceans to freeing prisoners to, to seeing revival to discipling nations to being persecuted. All the things are all part of our prescription. They're all part of our, our inheritance. And these are all relational words. Commendation, inheritance, citizenship, belonging. These are, these are relational words. And I believe that as we get into this passage of faith, we're going to find people that are not so great. They're not so superhero and so awesome that we're never going to see another awesome move of God that way. They're just simple people that 
believed in God and took him at his word, that followed his voice on the ocean. This is a great verse to end on. We'll close with this, if it's the right one or not. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. This is what I feel like is the operation of faith. It's a faith that pleases him. It's a faith that brings peace. It's a faith that means win, lose, or draw, I'm still... It says in Psalm 16, you have put my portions in pleasant places that your presence is full of joy. This is the type of faith. It's the type of response to God that says yes and, and doesn't weigh the costs. It's a confidence that doesn't weigh the costs of the circumstance. Let's pray and close. And we'll do some worship in closing as well. Thank you, God, for, for believing in us, for entrusting faith to us, for giving us faith. And your voice is so much unlike every other voice. Every other voice is here today and gone tomorrow and changes according to the wind of the doubts of the age and the era, but your voice stands firm. Your word stands firm. It stands strong. It is not moved. And we read those passages like we read about the man, the two men that build their houses on different foundations. We read about the times that come that are not just will they come or maybe they'll be here one day or who knows what will happen in the future. No, the storms come. The winds rage. The times tumult. The political powers that be turn over again. This is what this, this scripture speaks to us, and we see the futility of building a house on sand, on basing life and putting our feet on something that is not secure. Oh God, we ask for a confident faith. We ask for a faith that we could speak to our children and children's children that speaks of a greater foundation, a place to put our feet, a place that doesn't see decay, that doesn't see disgrace, that doesn't see doom, that doesn't see dysfunction, a place to put our feet, a place to build a house, a place to be fruitful and to multiply, a place that can only be built on God's word. So we thank you for your voice on the waves, God, and that the storm wasn't about the storm in the first place. It was about your voice. And we thank you that we hear your voice and, and our prayers that our hearts are soft. And as we turn to you now to worship and respond, you would speak to us like a father would a child. And as a child, we respond in faith, saying yes trusting in the person that's speaking. Amen. Thanks for joining us. If you have been encouraged or challenged by this message, please let us know by leaving feedback on our iTunes podcast. For more information on our church, visit us at www.citylights.cc. Thanks for exalting Jesus with us.